Good morning, good morning. Just want to say thank you to Jared, first of all, for being with us and as our guest worship leader this morning. Um, he's uh, from Hannibal, Missouri. His, uh, he and his family are leaning into the CEC, and, uh, and we just kind of grabbed him today to help us, and so we appreciate him being here and driving down here with us. And so um, let's just take a moment. I, I think you probably heard about what happened in Egypt uh, in the Coptic Church um, just a few hours ago. Uh, a couple of Christian churches were blown up because it was Palm Sunday. And um, so it's just appropriate for us to stop. Uh, these are our brothers and sisters. This is our family. And uh, let's just pray for a moment. Lord, we're sobered by these, uh, these frightening things that we hear about. Lord, we can't imagine what's happening in that community, what this the ripples that this uh, spreads through um, the church in that region, family and friends that are experiencing loss today. Lord, we realize that in this world, we will have trouble. There's going to be difficulties like this. These things seem nonsense. They don't make clear uh, understanding to us, but we trust you in the midst of these moments. Lord, we know that there is tension in the world. Um, and that there are those that hate what you stand for and certainly your people that follow you. And so we hold on to you in faith. We trust in you, and we just pray for peace. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, today's Palm Sunday. You probably got a palm when you walked in. Um, and so this is the day that starts Holy Week, or Passion Week, as we call it in the church, and this is the week before Easter that leads up to Easter, and Palm Sunday is a day of, of pretty mixed emotion. On one side, this is uh, the end of Lent, and uh, we're getting towards this. I hope you've been Lenting well, but sometimes towards the end of Lent, we can get just a little tired of this. Um, some of the things that we've sacrificed, some of the things that we've given up, um, that we said no to, to make room for God, uh, we find out how important some of those things were, and we start getting irritated. And, and so there's kind of some negative feelings. Even though we believe this is good, we believe that there's good in this idea of making room for God, and, and uh, it just can get frustrating. And this is the moment where we ask God to search our hearts. Lord, if there's something in me that is not like you, then come in and speak to me. Make it clear to me. If I'm clouded in my understanding and my view, and if I'm not seeing things right, come in uh, and, and make it clear. And, and I have had a little bit of a sobering Lent. I've been um, kind of reminded, and it's just uh, been really, really clear to me how dependent I am on my circumstances to be happy and to be at peace. It has just really bubbled to the surface more for me and uh, this Lent, and it's been a bit challenging. Now, you would probably never know it. People have said that uh, they can't ever quite tell what I'm thinking, um, that I'm kind of have a blank look on my face all the time. Well, this is just 35 years of being in the counseling office, and you hear stories, and you kind of have to be used to hearing stories and not letting your jaw drop, okay, <laughs> and go, what? Um, what did you do? Um, and so I've, you've just kind of learned to listen. And, and, and so 
People would say I'd make a really good poker player. And, uh, but inside, I'm just amazed at how I just am bouncing all over the place. Depending on what the day calls and some of the different challenges and struggles and so forth, I'm just all over the map. And I've just been simply convicted of that. Now, the reality is God has not changed. His goodness has not changed. His love has not changed. His provision has not changed. But I'm going all over the planet. Now, if I were him and it's really, really good, I'm not... Um, I would be pretty frustrated with me. Uh, really, Brent, after 60 years of, of my faithfulness in your life, and every time you go through something, I take you through it and help you walk that out. Really? That is your, is your trust and is your faith that weak? So I don't know what your experience has been, but I'm ready to go past Lent because I've had enough um, conviction here. But I'm hoping that it will turn some corners in my life and help me to lean in a little bit deeper. So that's kind of one side of Lent that we might be experiencing. Um, on one side of Palm Sunday. On the other side, this is pointing us to Easter. This is pointing to us to this event that literally changed the world. The resurrection that changed the world instantly when it happened. Um, the world was made new, and we are walking into that, and we are leaning into that, and so next week, we're going to throw a party. Uh, this is going to be a great experience for us to, to recognize and receive and hold on to the fact that the world has been made new. So this ending of Lent, looking towards Easter, gives us mixed emotions, and in the first Palm Sunday, there were mixed emotions. Jesus had been talking to them, those that were close to him, and telling them that he was going to have to die. And it was hard for them to comprehend. As we look throughout the Gospels, sometimes Jesus is teaching things to his disciples, and they don't quite understand it. They don't get it. So he's telling them that he's going to die, and then they come into Jerusalem, and there's this huge fanfare. It was confusing what's going on here. There was a mix of emotions. Did the people really know what they were celebrating? Did they really know what was going on? As we're going to see today, Jesus turned things upside down. He does things differently than how we would do them as humans. So this is the week of Passover in the Jewish culture. They were remembering um, the Passover of the angel passing over their homes of their descendants and in Egypt when they were in slavery and they were recognizing that. And so everybody was coming to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the Jewish law was that, that not only those in the city, but any male that lived within 20 miles of the city had to be at Passover. And so you have not only the Jews that live in Jerusalem, but you have everybody within 20 miles. And then this was also a thing in the Jewish culture that people would look forward to this pilgrimage, that they oftentimes would go to Jerusalem. So, so Jews from every corner of the world um, were gathering here. So the streets were packed. Their um, numbers of how many actually people were there, they just said it was kind of wall-to-wall -wall, uh, people. If you can imagine um, just pictures and scenes, if you've been in New York City and rush hour traffic and so forth, of just what the sidewalks look like, that that's kind of what um, Jerusalem looked like at the time. 
Um, this was also a time, of course, that some people were um, trying to make some political statements. So if you can envision first century political banners were probably on the side of, of, the, of the roads. Um, people were trying to um, talk about a change that they wanted to see happen and a change in the, in the culture and a change in the ruling authorities. And, and so there was a lot that was happening here. As a matter of fact, there were probably some uprisings and some revolts. The Roman guards probably had to be um, um, beefed up a bit for this experience. And so, so this, this shouting that we just read about um, were the crowds in, in Matthew, Hosanna in the highest. This was actually a slogan of the ultra-nationalistic zealots, which meant, God, save us now. Please save us. Give us freedom. In essence, we are sick of these Romans. And so they were ready to take up arms. They were ready uh, to revolt and to see something new happen. They wanted freedom. And Jesus did come to give them freedom, but in a different way than what they anticipated or in a different way than what they expected. Just a few days ago, we had this fun holiday, April Fools, where things look one way, but then they end up being another way, and we get surprised. I mean, maybe we could call Palm Sunday the first April Fools. But, but I have to tell you, my favorite April Fools story, 1999, we started the church, so that spring break things were really tight for us financially. We'd made a big risk to start this church, and, and so things were tight for us. We had kids, four kids, ages 5 to 15. We were trying to keep them in their, their private schools. Well, spring break came, and I was really just bummed. Our kids had gone through a lot that year, and I really wanted to do something wonderful for them for spring break. I wanted to do some great holiday or something, and we just couldn't afford it. So our oldest had gone on a missions trip, and I think he was a sophomore in high school, and he came back at the end of the week, and I was like, Brent, can I just do something, like, super cool for the kids? And he was like, yeah, whatever, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, if I could just take them someplace really fun for lunch and let them get anything they wanted even with drinks. You know, back then when there's six of you and it's like drinks are $2 a piece, it's like, no, we're all drinking water. Remember when we go in, we're all drinking water. So, <laughs> and mom. So, um, so he was like, absolutely, go ahead. And I'm like, you're sure we have enough money? And he's like, yes, we're fine. We can't go on a trip, but you can go to lunch. Okay, we have enough in the bank account. It's no problem. He's like, yes, it's no problem. So I get the kids, and I'm like, we're going to go out and have a really fun lunch, and Preston's going to tell us all about his missions trip. So we go to their favorite restaurant, and we sit down, and I order an appetizer. That's living on the edge. So I order an appetizer, and then they order their meals, and I'm like, get drinks. It's fine. And we have this meal. And of course, they're going, does dad know about this? Is this okay? I was like, it's fine. Trust me. So I'm like, let's get dessert. So we get a big death by chocolate for the table. And we're sitting there. And we're having fun. And we're hearing all about his trip. And the check comes. And I give him my debit card. And the guy comes back and leans in. And he says, uh, ma'am, your card's been declined. What? At that moment, she was thinking very bad thoughts about me. <laughs> I asked him over and over again, I, and, and uh, I said, well, just run it again. I'm sure it's fine. I ran it twice. Oh, okay. And the kids are like, Mom, what's going on? So I reach in my wallet, and I grab a credit card, and I hand it to him, and I said, it's fine. It's no big deal. I don't know what's going on, but it's no big deal. He comes back, and he says, uh, ma'am, that card's been declined as well. 
what? I'm shocked, I'm angry, I'm embarrassed, I'm frustrated. And so I'm like, um, okay, would you take a check? And you can see in his eyes, lady, you just had two cards declined. Do you seriously think I'm going to take a check from you? So I'm panicky. I say, okay, Preston, you stay and watch the kids. I'm going to go to the bank machine. If I can't get cash there, I will go to dad's office and I will get cash. So I, um, so I go to the bank machine. I get money out. It's not any problem at all. So I go back. I pay the bill. We're all embarrassed. It just mortified me. I mean, I was just shocked, and it just mortified me. So I go home that night, and I'm talking to Brent. We don't know why the debit card was declined. He proved to me online that there was money in there. And, and so we didn't know why it was declined. We look at the credit card, and it was he had given me a new one, and I hadn't thrown the old one away, and so it was expired. And so it's like, okay, okay, it's okay. But I'm still just really antsy. I'm just, it shook me. It was embarrassing. We don't have things like that. It was awful. So the next morning, I have to get the kids up to take them to a soccer game, and I get them all in the van, and, and um, they're like, can we stop for donuts? Can we stop and get chocolate milk? And I'm thinking, I'm not using my debit card again. I may never use my debit card the rest of my life. It was that embarrassing. So I'm like, okay, go through the house, find any change that you can, get anything you have, and we'll just do that. So we stop at Quick Trip, and they get their stuff, and and it's like, okay, this is great. We get up to the, the counter, and I start counting out quarters, which is embarrassing by itself, but it's like deb- better than a debit card issue. So I'm counting out quarters, and the guy looks at me, and he says, oh, ma'am, I'm sorry, we don't take change. And I'm like, what? You don't take change? And he goes, no, I'm sorry, we don't take change at Quick Trip. I'm like, okay, um, will you take a check? And he's like, uh, no, we don't take checks. And I was like, okay, I guess I can give you my debit card. I'm getting more and more. And he goes, April Fools. <laughs> it was like the only time in my life I have really wanted to just punch somebody. I'm like, do you have any idea what I went through yesterday? That was absolutely terrible. <laughs> Sometimes things happen. And they're not what we expect. (laughs) Somehow God is taking care of us in the midst of it. But sometimes we hit things that don't look like we think they should look. So we we all want um, and have this anticipation of how things should be. Uh, Many anticipated a kingdom, a different kind of kingdom, right at this minute. They were looking for an overthrow of the government. The disciples were even thinking about this. Let's have an uprising. Um, and let's make a change right here. But um, Jesus wasn't interested in that. People wanted to be ruled as they were used to being ruled. But he was not interested in that. If he was, he would have come in on a white stallion. Um, he would have come in as that kind of a leader of, uh, of, of an army. As a matter of fact, historians suggest that there were probably several kinds of celebrations going on. Uh, many historians believe that, um, that some of the, the leaders of the time that were probably on white stallions coming in other gates of Jerusalem. And uh, they were riding in with power and probably had some of their army with them at the time. But it says Jesus came in riding on a donkey. There was a, a different kind of approach. Uh, this, this donkey uh, represented peace. And it was also a cult that had never been ridden, um, representing this sense of, of purity. 
So Jesus was not interested in ruling over the government and over the country. He was interested in, in the hearts of men. So therefore, the meaning that Jesus uh, attaches to this so-called triumphal entry is quite different than what the people anticipated, what they wanted to see. So April Fools. In our, in our ministry experience, people typically, typically come to God when something difficult has happened. They've had something bad go on in their lives, or there's something that they really want badly. In 9-11, after 9-11, church in, uh, attendance increased dramatically. People were seeking out God, and they were asking some of the really important questions. But as people, it's so easy for us to focus on what we want him to do and how we want him to do it, how we want him to give us peace, to save us, to protect us. We can easily get into do this, God, and do it this way, and do it now, please, because I want it done by this particular time. Jesus does come, and he answers the prayers of his people. He's so good. He's so loving. And fortunately, he doesn't wait to see if our motives line up right, to see if we have the right motive to be asking this. He loves us just the way that we are. He knows us totally and completely. He loves the lost. And he came to seek out and to rescue his people. He sees who we are, and his heart is to take care of his children. It's just the way that he does it sometimes fools us or confuses us. When he acts in our lives, he does things in a way that's different than we sometimes expect him to act. We see that here in this scripture. He was going to rescue his people in the way that he planned, not in the way that they were anticipating. Sometimes that seems upside down to us. So we look at what the people were expecting. The people wanted a prophet to speak of the glory of the new kingdom. Yet he would come and call them to repentance. The people wanted a king, a ruler, a true Messiah with strength and power. And his throne was a wooden cross. The people wanted to be rescued from oppression and evil. And Jesus would rescue them, but on the deepest possible level not just from their current situation of oppression from Rome. As a matter of fact, as I've been challenged this Lenten season as I was sharing, uh, real transformation is when our circumstances don't determine our state of mind. I believe that real transformation is when uh, something has changed internally in us, our dependency and our trust in him so much, so, so that when difficulties do happen, when our circumstances are throwing us for a loop, our, sim- our, our response is simply, I wonder, I wonder how God's going to work this out. It's going to be curious to see what he will do in the midst of this. Once you invite Jesus into the lordship of your life, he'll surprise you and move in more deeply um, and thoroughly than you anticipate. Uh, many years ago, I worked, um, before we started the church here, I worked for a really large ministry. Um, We had upwards of 5,000 people at the time. We had several different outreaches and different corporations and national TV ministry and all kinds of things. And and we were growing so rapidly that we were in a building project and we were looking um, for uh, adding on about doubling the the building that we had. And we were looking for some special financing. 
And one of my responsibilities at the time was to make sure that we got this financing. And, and so we, um, in doing that, we had to have a, a certified audit done. And so I talked with a, a large um, accounting firm and talked about what that would be. And I assumed that they would come, we'd sit down, we'd show them our in-house financials. Um, they would ask them some questions and they would simply render an audit. It didn't quite work that way. Um, they, uh, th this audit took nine months. Um, one of the partners in the firm moved into our offices for nine months. He had an office next to mine. They wanted to know every single thing we did, every, why we made every decision, how we handled every single transaction, what determined that. They wanted to meet with our finance team. They wanted to meet with our, with our elders. They, um, they met with us over and over again. They wanted to know how we filed stuff in the filing cabinets. Actually, when you use filing cabinets, this was before, before computers and we used in that way. And, and every single thing, and I tell you what, it was incredibly irritating. Um, toward the end, I was ready for this uh, guy to go. He looked at every single thing and, and challenged us in every way that we made decisions. But I'm telling you what, we came out of that a completely different organization. It was one of the healthiest things we had ever done. Not only did it impact just simply our financial ability to get this loan for our addition, but it changed our culture. It changed how we, we did things. And so the way that worked is we had to submit totally to their oversight in everything that we did. But it changed us. It changed us completely. And that's the kind of thorough uh, internal work that God wants to do in us. So this grand entrance of Jesus in Jerusalem reveals the mismatch of our expectations, how we think God is going to move, and how God chooses to move in the world, his actual plans and purposes. Even though the people would be disappointed at the moment on the surface level, his entrance into, the, into Jerusalem was the beginning of a new salvation. This was beginning of the salvation for the world. It just was different from how they were expecting it. This is the message of a new kingdom. This new kingdom that's playing out this final week before the greatest event of our Christian life, of the life in the world, the resurrection. The resurrection was to bring a new way of living to the world, not a temporary fix, a deeper work, a new way of living. This new way of living is, that, is what we're seeking out each and every time that we meet. How do you want us to live, Lord? As we've prayed over the years about, okay, what's our role on the teaching team? I really feel like the Lord says over and over again, how do we live? How do we live this out? Through Lent, we've been challenged to do some difficult things. I don't know about you, but they have stretched me in many ways as we have things examined in our lives. You know, we've been stretched to make room for God. I've been stretched to look at my own mortality, to recognize we're not in control, even though we think we are, to open our hearts and our lives honestly to God. And even to lament and to cry out when we don't feel like things are happening the way they should be, when we're angry at some of the circumstances in our lives. 
And I've been stretched to think about others before myself. How do I put them first? It's a new way of living that is transformative within each of us. I don't know about you, but these are not really the themes that we usually would pick if we wanted to talk about how God works in our life. Um, we'd probably pick things like how, do you, how to assure the 100% return on our giving, um, how to be happy all the time, how to never go without, four steps to marital bliss, six easy steps to fulfilling your purpose. It, all while being more beautiful, more wonderful, more fit, and having younger looking skin in less than three weeks. <laughs> So our focus as humans is usually on our comfort, isn't it? On our current situations, on how things can be nicer um, and funner for us. But God in his infinite love for us knew and knows that we need more than comfort. Now, it's not that he's not interested in our comfort. He taught us to pray, give us our daily bread. And so he's interested in those things. But, but he came to give, give us a, a much greater gift than that. Just simply a new way to live. Uh, That Palm Sunday, people wanted and anticipated a new king. They were ready to pick up the swords and and fight for a new way. Um, They were thinking that Jesus is going to help get rid of the Romans, going to establish a new political party. Their life is going to be better today because of it. Their schools are going to flourish. The local economy recover, and they're going to find real happiness. Yet this new life in Jesus was different than what they expected. So what is this new life? What does it involve? Since we only have a few minutes left, I don't think we could go into it all, or I don't think we could in a year. It really is going to take our lifetime to search out and to taste and see the goodness that God has for us, to see the things that he has in each of our lives. But one of the foundations of this new kingdom is about receiving his love for us and the life that he has for us, to accept that he's at work in our lives and in our circumstances, and it's not about us making it happen by our willpower or by earning God's favor So if I get enough favor, life is going to go great for me and that everything is going to be perfect. This means we have to learn to really trust in him and not ourselves, no matter how difficult the circumstances are. That's hard for me. When things aren't going the right way, I just jump into action mode and go, well, I could just do this, 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 and this, and this. But we have to lean in and we have to trust in him and know that he is at work in our lives. And we have to accept that his ways are higher than my ways, and that he is working something good in my life. Even if I don't see it right now, even if things look confusing, even if things look like they're upside down. And we have to believe in his grace. We have to believe that his grace is sufficient for us, and it's not about our performance. It's not about how we fix it or how we work harder. Even the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God is saying, Paul, I know what I'm doing. Just rest in my grace. No, I'm going to carry you through. It's not how you think it should be, but rest in my grace. I can carry you through this. 
But of course, we want to tend, tend to have it our way. We want to, you know, say, your will be done. Uh, but can I tweak it just a little bit? Um, can I help kind of coach the Holy Spirit on how I think this all should work? Um, he knows what he's doing in our life. And we're just simply uh, challenged this Lent season to trust him. To trust him more, uh, regardless of our circumstances. I believe that circumstances are simply like two train tracks. Um, or a train track, which is, has two sides. We've got really good and wonderful things that are happening in our life, and we have really challenging things and difficult things that are happening in our life. That's the way I think life works. You're going to have both. This side of heaven, you're going to have both. Constantly laid beside each other. So it's not that if we do certain things and all of a sudden we get rid of one side of the track uh, and we can only have good. It's, right, it's leaning into that this is what life is. We're never going to find contentment in life uh, with managing um, our circumstances to try to get everything uh, to turn out right. Hedging our bets in case God doesn't come through quite the way we hope he will and quite in, in quite the timing. All that is tied up in our lack of trust, this false belief that lingers in us, uh, that if I do everything right, if I do it a certain way, then God will bless me. So that's those faulty beliefs that we're talking about, earning God's favor, saying the right prayer, having the right kind of faith to be healed, giving it the perfect offering appeal to get the right return, reading through Scripture to be worthy of His blessing, saying just the right words to get a neighbor or friend to accept Christ. That's all our own manipulation. Obviously, we want you to read scripture. Obviously, we want you to, pr to pray. We want you to have the discipline of giving in your life because those things help you grow. They help form you. Those are good habits to build in your life to help you grow in so many, of, in so many ways. But what we're saying is if you're doing this to earn the right response from God, if you do it to try to get the things that you want and to earn that, there's not going to be peace. You won't have contentment in that. Think of Paul with all the work that he did for the kingdom. God didn't speak to him and say, work a little harder, do this. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Rest, rest in my grace. Grace is the foundation for peace in all of our lives. God is completely good, even when our circumstances are bewildering and confusing. We'll only have peace when we understand his grace, when we accept the fact that we're not going to always know what God is up to in some of these things. Some of these things don't look right. Some of them look upside down to us. But we accept that he is good and that he is trustworthy. He knows what he's doing, whether we do or not. And our job is to relax in him and to trust him, and to trust in his goodness, and to trust in his grace. He is a loving God, and we can trust our lives to him. So when you walk out of here today with your palm branch in your hand, um, and maybe set it on the mantle for a few days, or as you're in the van and the kids are whacking each other with them, um, you're, you're welcome, by the way. Um, <laughs> Let, let them just simply, every time you look at that branch, let's just simply remember that even though our anticipation of how he works and how things should go is oftentimes at odds with his plans and purposes, that his ways are always good.
He is deeply good. He is always good. And he's in the midst of mess. His good is in the midst of mess. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I want to leave you with one final quote from C.S. Lewis. I love this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking, knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Let's let him move in and do his deep work in our life. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.